Hello, and Happy New Year from everyone here at INS and the I Hear Design podcast, your source for interior design and architecture news, interviews, and opinions. I'm your host, Robert Nieminen, Chief Content Director of INS, and I hope you had a wonderful holiday season and New Year's celebration. It's hard to believe 2023 is already underway, but I'm excited for this new year and all the possibilities it holds, and I trust that you are as well. I appreciate you joining us for today's episode because we are going to be kicking off a three-part series on sustainability and design in which we're going to be talking about a variety of topics ranging from how to design for the new climate reality we're facing, which we'll be exploring in this episode uh, in just a minute, to the most current tools and resources that architects and designers can use to reduce the carbon footprints of their projects, which we will get into in our next uh, episode. And we'll wrap up the series on sustainability by focusing on higher education and how a number of universities are making commitments to curbing the climate crisis on a global scale. So be sure to tune into each of these episodes, which I think you'll find informative and hopefully inspiring as well. For today's episode, I sat down with Jay Valgora, principal and founder of Studio V, and John Swalker, director of sustainability and wellness at HLW, and had a lively conversation in which they share their passion for and perspectives on how to design for the new climate reality. Let's dive in. All right. Well, hi, Jay. Hi, John. So welcome to the I Hear Design podcast. Thanks so much for being here. Yeah, great hey, to Robert. be here. And it's really yeah. nice to join you. Thanks. Absolutely. Well, I'm really excited to kick off this three-part series on sustainability and design that we're doing this year because um, while the topic is far from new, as you know, um, I think it's really more important than it ever has been. And, you know, I think a lot of people are waking up to a new climate reality, as it were, uh, where we're seeing more severe and frequent weather events that are adversely impacting communities around the world and how the design of the built environment can play a role in mitigating those negative impacts. But uh, before we dive into all that, uh, for our listeners who may not be familiar with you, uh, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and the work that you do at your your respective firms? Um, So, Jay, I'll I'll start with you. Sure. So thanks for having me. I'm the founder of Studio V Architecture. We're based in New York City and Manhattan. I feel really lucky to work with an incredibly talented group of people, but we're really a small boutique firm. Uh, really addressing all different scales of projects. It kind of doesn't even make sense, the range of our work from whole sections of cities down to individual buildings, tall buildings, small buildings, down to even small community-based projects. A theme of all of our work really ties in with the idea of working to reinvent the city. And a huge part of that is addressing issues of resiliency, the waterfront, and sustainability. Okay, great. Thank you. Jones, what about you? Yeah, Robert, thanks. Thanks for having me. This is a real treat. Um, and I'm, I'm happy to be joining this conversation with Jay. So I'm John Swalker. I'm the global director of sustainability and wellness at HLW. HLW is a an international uh, architecture and design firm. Our headquarters is uh, also in New York City, where we have offices in London, New Jersey, Connecticut, uh, Los Angeles and San Francisco, and I run our in-house sustainability consultancy, which is called Beyond. And so we work uh, with all of our clients to sort of decarbonize, maximize wellness, integrate uh, biophilic design, and really create a space that maximizes sustainability, but also maximizes wellness for the people who use those spaces. Great. Thank you. You guys are the perfect uh, people for me to be talking to for our conversation today, so I'm, I'm glad you're here. Uh, plenty of experience and insights. I uh, can't wait for you to share with our listeners. So 
So getting to the topic at hand, where would you say we are right now in terms of the battle against climate change? Like, in other words, what is the new climate reality that we're facing? Who wants to go first? Well, I can start if you'd like. Uh, okay, first sure. of all, I, I think we're at a critical point. We're actually at a almost generational transformational point in addressing climate change. Clearly, right now at this time, we're on the cusp of irreversible change in climate change and the built environment just the portion you know that we're lucky enough to get to work on is such an important part of the future of our planet in terms of addressing carbon in terms of addressing sustainability in terms of addressing resiliency i also think that we're at a point of the reinvention of the city people have completely re-embraced the idea of a city after the post-war period when cities were largely abandoned when there was urban renewal that was actually destroying cities when there was redlining that was dividing cities Now we're at the point where cities have become engines of economic growth, and we're also facing the realities of a global pandemic in conjunction with climate change. So I think we're at one of the most essential points. And I think as designers, architects, professionals, we have an incredible opportunity to really make a mark and start to address these issues that are going to be so central to the future of our cities, to our society, and to our children. Jay, Jay makes, I mean, brilliant points. And I think sort of start with the darn it bummer moment and then hopefully share some some highlights. So you're, the point is we, we have done, unfortunately, too much harm. And it's a little bit of a runaway uh, train at the moment uh, in terms of climate change. And and we're people talk about like, well, let's let's try to mitigate climate change because we're in it. We're in it. We're seeing the effects of it right now, uh, unfortunately. And it, it's going to get it's going to get worse before I think it improves. However, that doesn't mean we should slow down. And I think that to Jay's point, what we do every day is design um, the built environment, which is responsible for the bulk of carbon emissions globally. And so uh, we have a real responsibility. And I think informing and empowering and exciting our clients to do more is is critical. We can't have net zero targets in 2050. We need to have net zero targets right now if we're going to really sort of slow this down. So we're at we're at a really important point here and um, we need to accelerate our influence in terms of building and designing spaces that maximize the pursuit of a sustainable project. I could only kind of build on that of what John said, because we really have an obligation right now to kind of educate people what the possibilities are. We have an obligation right now to convince our clients of the benefits of addressing issues of climate change now. And even Robert, podcasts like yours are important because we need to get the story out there and tell it to people in ways that they can understand. And really, so all of us can participate in this because it's really our whole society and designers are just going to be creating the environment to support that. But a lot of that is getting out the message and also sharing information together, where hopefully today we'll talk about examples of our work. I can't wait to hear what John says to show. And because we come from different firms and we could do it at both the scale of large firms and small firms, but all of us could have a positive effect on climate change. And we're excited to kind of share that with your listeners because it gives us a chance to get the message out. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, and it, and it is so critical because I've heard the design of the built environment buildings rather consume what 70 percent of the of the energy uh, that's produced in the U.S. like every year. So, I mean, that, that's a huge number that we're talking about. I'm mean, just big, big impacts. And John, so you mentioned, you know, having net zero targets now rather than in the future. You know, we hear terms thrown around carbon neutrality, going to climate positive. I mean, I've heard all kinds of different things. Are there misconceptions, you know, around climate change and the role that the design of of buildings, you know, the role that they play in that that you think we need to address? 
Yeah, there's a little bit of jargon out there. And we, we, we find a lot of our clients have these commitments of, of net zero or climate positive or carbon positive, and, and yet it's tricky for them to define what that is. And that's, that's okay. That's part of our job is to help them figure that out. But it's uh, one, one thing I just want to touch on quickly. It's more important to also think about these targets um, and the focus depending on where you are in the country, like where your project is, because some grids, you know, the, the greenhouse gas carbon intensity is different in different parts of the country. And so I just wanted to just throw that out there that, that sometimes you need to have some nuance and some lens around these goals and targets to really hone in and and suggest design interventions that matter on where you are. But to answer your question, yes, there's all these there's all these things around net zero and climate positive, carbon positive, et cetera. And I think it's those are all great terms, but it's important to be, you know, apples to apples comparison when when we're talking with clients and um, making these commitments for sure. I could add maybe two parts to that, too. Like one issue I think has to do with scale. Like in terms of misconceptions, what can we do and how can we approach things? And to me, what's interesting at Studio V, we work on all projects from very small renovations to very large buildings to whole sections of cities. And I think we have to think about how we can address it from the point of view of scale, whether it's a small individual project where we're renovating a building and how we're saving elements or reusing elements or using them in creative ways up into if we're creating entire neighborhoods where we have opportunities to create much larger experiments to address with issues of resiliency, issues of sustainability, issues of carbon capture. So I think scale is one of them. The second one, I think that's sometimes a misconception, and this is really a result of climate change, is resiliency. Being based in New York here, we have 526 miles of waterfront, and there's a debate about how do we address the waterfront with climate change and sea level rise. And I think there's a question about retreat. And to me, this is very challenging because I don't think we're retreating or relocating New York City. There are certain areas that we could talk about that are very low density in some neighborhoods like the Rockaways or Staten Island. But the majority of it, we can't really address retreat because it's too far for that. So the question is how we can create whole new models of resiliency to deal with climate change and sea level rise. And I think that's something that's very central to our practice. And a big misconception is, can we just run away from it? I don't think we have to run away from it. I think we need innovative new models to address it. Yeah, that's a good point, Jay. To that point, how would you say the A&D industry is doing as a whole and responding to the call to create more sustainable buildings that are net zero or, or you know, going beyond that. Are we doing enough currently or, or what else needs to be done at this point? Yeah, I can, I can jump in, Robert. And I, I just want to agree with Jay's previous comment. The question is, are we is the A&E industry doing enough? Right. The answer is no. And there are certainly some gems out there that are that are doing enough. But. I think what really needs to happen is is projects need to be really closely evaluated through not a new term, but the triple bottom line. And, and basically, you know, financially obviously has to work for the client, but also socially and environmentally, like those other two pieces should have equal value to the economics of the economic viability of a project. And and right now they they typically don't. And so, you know, we, we try really hard within the beyond team of HLW to have that conversation with a client because typically the client does have, you know, some ESG goals or some uh, corporate social responsibility goals 
that live on their website. But it's our job to say, listen, you have these goals. How are these goals that you have put forward going to influence this project and really push them to live up to some of these commitments that, that they have made uh, within their within their organization? So the answer is we're not doing enough. We need to do more. We need more code to push. You know, New York has some really great Climate Mobilization Act policy. L.A. is, you know, banning, you know, on-site combustion there are some municipalities in, in the U.S. that are acting on this and being uh, fairly progressive, but we need everybody else to step up, too. Um, it can't just be those cities. It needs to be everybody. And we need to all be rowing in the same direction, regardless of the size of project, regardless of the client, regardless of the location. It needs to. We need to kind of all be moving towards regenerative um, design because we kind of have a debt. And now we need to be designing spaces that are creating more than we're taking away. Jay, you want to respond to that? Yeah, I think, well, first of all, I just want to say, because I didn't know John's before, and I feel like already certain synergies here, I feel like we should find some stuff to work on together, John's, because it's all yeah. about collaboration. Yeah. Yeah. It's Absolutely, not about one Jay. versus the other. You know? Yeah, yeah. Yes. And, I, and I can tell you guys have some greater resources, and sometimes we have innovative ideas. So like talking about that a little bit, what we can do, I think sometimes we need to set our own standards. So for example, we have our own standards about resiliency that we use in the office that exceed codes today. So in terms of addressing climate change, like we have actually, uh, in some ways, we actually did projects that helped rewrite the New York City code for the waterfront zoning where some of the early projects we adopted at Hallett's Point, for example, were written into the zoning ordinance and written into the code because the city elected to follow them. For example, uh, lifting the heights of buildings relative to definition of base plane, which allows you to not be penalized for elevation projects. That's now part of the comprehensive waterfront zoning. Some of it is creating our own codes where we increase the amount of freeboard, which is necessary for buildings in order to address climate change. Some of it is what we have to contribute. Like we do a lot of pro bono work and we have to make sure, you know, as a small firm that we're viable, but we're proud of the fact that, you know, we helped uh, author New York City's 10 year comprehensive waterfront plan to deal with issues of resiliency and climate change on a volunteer basis. And we were the only architects in New York that we're on the board, uh, Waterfront Management Advisory Board to help do that. So we're proud of that. We're even engaging in community-based projects, which is, you know, helping create community-based sustainable projects, reducing carbon footprint, doing that with small community leaders, like we're doing that right now with Majora Carter in the Bronx, renovating a ruined train station by Cass Gilbert. So I think we can do more at every level, but in some ways we have to set the standards. And most of all, I'd return to, we have to collaborate together, which is why I'm glad to meet John's on this one because already I could tell there's probably some things we can do together. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Jay, what would you say are some of the obstacles that you see preventing the design community from making you know faster progress towards uh, you know our climate goals? I think part of it is we need to share information with each other. Like I've learned, and, and this is part of my team even thinking about how we can work with others. Where once we dug into it, we did a project recently where we're doing the largest geothermal project in New York City. It's at 1515 Surf Avenue. It's under construction in Coney Island. Um, we couldn't have done that except we found great partners. So we had to do an intensive research. And so one of the obstacles was finding the right people that had the right knowledge to do that. We eventually settled, in this case, on a firm called EcoSafe. And now by working with them, by working with a committed client, partly government had to do with it because they changed some of the energy rules and the client wanted to get ahead of that. So there's many people contributing. But really, it's about finding the right people to work together and then sharing those solutions. So part of the reason I even want to talk about that today is 
Like I'm excited that we're doing the largest geothermal project. I'm shocked by that. It's the largest by a factor of two uh, because it's even a geothermal campus for two 30 story buildings, including it's for regular projects. It's rental New York income and a lot of it is affordable housing. And we got the numbers to pencil. So to me, the challenges are about how can we find creative solutions that make economic sense? How can we find the right partners? And then the last challenge is how can we share that information with everyone else so that we can all steal the best ideas from each other and use them to really address this problem as a group instead of individuals? Yeah, and I think I think Jay's got a great point. I didn't know that's cool, Jay, that you have you worked on you worked on fifteen fifteen surf Ave. That's awesome. I think from my perspective, just in agreement with Jay, but also in terms of challenges, is um, unfortunately we're still we're still challenged with like the education around sustainability and resilience. A lot of developers and and clients, you know, think that that's just like lead. You know, lead is a great tool. Don't get me wrong, and we do a ton of lead consulting, and it's a it's a really powerful tool. But I think we need to sort of move beyond a a sort of a static scorecard, and we need to think holistically, and we need to think about regional context, and we need to think about you know, the, the the climate zones that we're doing projects in, and we need to really, really think hard about what are the most important moments for this project in terms of sustainability, and we need to educate the client about those moments because the client has a bazillion other things coming at them. Um, and so to simplify what we need to do in order to decarbonize and maximize wellness, those those conversations need to happen really early and we need to get clients to commit to those really early and then those decisions should drive the design the design should follow those it shouldn't be a reaction to a a credit and a scorecard i think that's really important and and i think unfortunately that that still remains a challenge is that you know the word sustainability somehow equals lead only right definitely you know i want to just kind of reflect on something that i'm that i'm hearing the two of you saying and to me is 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 really encouraging, you know, in the 20 some odd years that I've been covering interior design and architecture, there was always this sort of sense that, you know, A&D firms were, you know, maybe more competitive or proprietary in what they were doing. Um, You didn't see that much of the collaborative nature and and kind of sharing ideas across firms like that. And I think, you know, to me, it seems that this is the really kind of the way forward, you know, getting past some of these challenges um, in, in addressing climate change. And maybe do you think it's because it's this is such a shared experience and shared challenges it's like something that's so much bigger than just one particular firm that this is happening i mean maybe it's because i raised my children in the city and now i'm facing them you know they're 21 and 24 and i'm thinking of the legacy we're leaving them and yeah it's Mm -hmm. not about our individual success or goals it's about what we're going to leave for our children for the next generation and i feel like during our time we only you know, became aware of this terrible crisis. We're trying to respond to it. We've exponentially, you know, as John said at the beginning, accelerated it, unfortunately, during our own lifetimes. And so I feel it's really a moral obligation, if I could say yeah. that, that we have to address this. And I think that means sharing information, working together. And there's also something exhilarating and exciting about it because you know, we do have a chance to make the world better and as designers, we aspire to do that. And I think that this is its the great challenge of our time. I think there is a really lovely 
sense of collaboration around this. You know, I talk with a lot of our competitors all the time who we, you know, lose jobs to or win jobs against. But when this, you know, we're sort of there's no boundary around climate change. It doesn't it transcends everything. And so, you know, when when you think of it like that, it's like, okay, we're all sort of in this together. How do we Mm -hmm. share knowledge and share information and lessons learned and what went well and what didn't go well on certain projects and stuff like that. And, and there, there are definitely mechanisms, official mechanisms for that. I mean, you know, the AIA has the large firm round table, which is a great venue, a collection of architects and designers in the U S that allow for those sorts of conversations to happen. And, and I've definitely learned a lot from folks that we compete with and hopefully the other side is true and then also robert just this these types of things having this conversation with jay um i think is also really important so yeah just i think to answer to answer sort of the question is we're sort of all in this together and and the more we realize that as architects and designers the faster we can sort of improve and hopefully get to some level of solving this very big problem yeah absolutely well, so what are some strategies and tools that architects, designers, and even owners can use to better help, you know, understand their project's impact uh, on the environment? Are there are there particular ones that you, uh, your firms use on a regular basis or ones that you've developed maybe? Well, I loved it when John said, like, you know, he was talking about sort of like the alphabet soup of what we do lead or there's passive house or there's net zero. And I mean, those things are all tools. My and I think they can be tools and strategies. But to me, my favorite thing is that we immediately make them obsolescent. What I mean by that is whatever tool we come up with, the entire goal is that we have to surpass it where it almost becomes the standard. Whatever was the former aspiration becomes the standard, becomes the code. And then we can set the bar higher because I think it is this incremental process. So uh, like one example is we helped work with the Waterfront Alliance, which is a nonprofit in New York to create the wedge guidelines, waterfront edge design guidelines, which are all about climate change and really trying to create another tool that allows people to become aware. And then we're trying to think of how to do that, maybe not just as an accolade, uh, you know, or an award that you get that, but to use that, for example, by working closely with regulatory agencies. So to offer to clients, maybe greater, greater regulatory certainty or community advocating for projects that adopt wedge guidelines, for example, as just one example of, you know, adding another standard. The other thing I would just say in terms of tools and strategies is, I think it's not so much even just about these individual programs, although those are great in terms of raising awareness. It's really about both and approaches. What I mean by that is it's not like we have single tools or single strategies. More and more, I think we need to have individual ideas and elements of design that in fact are addressing climate change uh, from multiple angles. Like on the Hellas Point project we're doing, we would create green infrastructure and that might have to, that might help us battle sea level rise, resiliency, stormwater treatment, carbon capture. Uh, the same waterfront site would also support a geothermal well strategy because the hydrology is excellent. So I guess my point would be the best tools of all are kind of Swiss army knives where they're actually taking multivalent approaches where they're addressing the issues of sustainability and climate change from multiple points of view. The best tools of all, I think, are not singular tools, but tools that will create a whole range of benefits. Yeah, it's a, it's a good point, Jay. And what, what we're finding is uh, 
I think leveraging rating systems is a thing that we do really well. And I think that they are really important tools in, in sort of in the toolbox, if you will. And we're, we're finding a lot of our clients are, are pursuing multiple rating systems at the same time because none of them do everything well. Well, none of them do everything. So we have a lot of clients who are doing, you know, lead well and net zero carbon at the same time because, you know, you have the lead suite of things that's just sort of like holistic sustainability. It kind of covers water, energy, et cetera. You have well, which covers sort of the, the human component of it. it. actually has nothing to do with sustainability. It's really about human health and wellness. And then you have the net zero carbon piece, which just focuses on carbon and not only operational carbon, but also embodied carbon. And that's another Maybe, Rob, you could have a whole session on embodied carbon alone because that's a humongous mm-hmm. topic that I think really needs to be focused on. So so my point is, like, I think the suite of rating systems are are really powerful, powerful tools, but they they remain um, a tool and they're not they're they're imperfect tools. And we we communicate that to the client and we want to aspire, you know, when the ribbon is cut to proclaim, you know, elite platinum net zero carbon building. But there's also a lot of other things that we consult on that maybe don't fit a rating system, but are just appropriate. We try really hard. And Jay, you're probably you, you guys are probably doing this a lot, too, is really think about ecological performance of a space. Like what is the ecosystem service this project is improving or or enhancing? And what what does that mean for even things like migration corridors of the monarch butterfly and things like that. So those mm. those those types of things aren't in rating systems. So it, it is it literally is a suite of solutions that's pretty big. And the important thing is to focus on what are the most impactful moments for each project, right? By the way, I love that answer. Yeah. And the, the, you're already kind of making me think about different elements we should add and, and ideas we could share. That was great. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I'm going to have to look into that embodied carbon as far as doing another uh, adding another episode to this uh, series. So, yeah, thank you for that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, as we start kind of landing the plane here and wrapping up, um, it, it, is there an overarching message or theme you hope to communicate to our listeners about uh, this new climate reality that we're all facing? Um, any kind of words of encouragement, maybe, or other, other insights that you want to share? I mean, one thing with me, people that know me, the entire ethos of our work is driven by optimism. And I know that's a a tough word to use given the challenges we're facing and the realities that, you know, we know that we have to deal with, with climate change and and how we're changing our whole world right now. But we at Studio V are absolutely driven by a spirit of optimism that we are in some ways moving towards the right direction, that there is greater awareness and that we have agency and the ability to help with this. And I'm not pretending that we have all the solutions or that we're there yet at all. But we move forward with a spirit of optimism. And I think the greatest danger is actually when people give into it and say, you know, they don't know what to do. It seems overwhelming. I think the message is as designers, we have to show people and demonstrate to them how the real things in their lives and their built environment can actually be a positive force for change and be beautiful and express something that's a higher form of our spirit and our desires and that that can be for the good. And I think that's a message that we really have to get out today. Absolutely. John, any final it, words? It's hard to, it's hard to follow Jay, you know, it's like <laughs> yeah. incredible. I mean, that's optimism is, I mean, gosh, that's a wonderful word. And, and it's fun that your, your firm really hangs your hat on that, that phrase. It's wonderful. 
I think, you know, Lisa Conway from Interface, we just had a conversation and she said, listen, carbon isn't necessarily bad. We just have too much of it in the wrong place. Mm. And that is 100 percent true. So if we can if we can really at the end of the day, think about design decisions around this idea of carbon and where carbon needs to be and where where it needs to move from that that can drive a lot of things um we've had projects go that were deep in design deep dd design and say you know what we're going to go mass timber and uh obviously it freaked the design team out because they had to change everything from steel concrete to mass timber but they did it because of because of carbon they did it because of the sequestration qualities of those timber beams and like if we can start to think about design decisions around carbon in addition to all the other things that go into design decisions i think that we have a real shot um and also like you know there are there are definitely wins there's a lot of legislation being pushed through around carbon around you know jay's point around our sensitive waterways i i would argue that some of you know the east river and the hudson that wrap manhattan are cleaner than they've been in a hundred years and so we're, we're definitely we're, we're making progress and we just got to accelerate that progress it's fantastic well well said both of you um thank you again jay and johns for being here and sharing your insights and expertise with our listeners uh, i really do appreciate it listen robert it's been awesome um and i appreciate the opportunity it's been it's been a lovely time yeah robert we're always welcome the chance to share stuff and thank you so much they're really thoughtful questions uh, they really you know, there's, it's, those are things that we're passionate about. So thank you for the yeah. opportunity to be able to share, you know, our Ab- thoughts. Absolutely. And I'm, and I'm really pleased that uh, you two uh, made the connection. And, and uh, I know it's going to uh, lead to a, a lot of great things. So thank you again. For our listeners out there, tune in later this month for part two of our series on sustainable design. And please subscribe to the I Hear Design podcast and give us a rating if you haven't done so already. Thanks so much for tuning in. And as always, be well, everyone. Mm-hmm.